Alrighty. So, um, I'm just now realizing this, everybody. I didn't put the verses I'm going to read before I begin on our PowerPoint. But um, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be first reading from Matthew 28, 1 through 16, and then jumping over to Luke 24, 36 through 49. Um, if you don't want to, you can just listen to my voice, which I'm sure you will not get tired of within the next half hour. Anyway, so uh, Matthew 28, starting with verse 1, and then again going through to verse 16. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city, and the chief priests told all of that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews until this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I actually read a little bit over, but that's okay. Now we're going to go back to Luke 24 and read 36 um, through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when, they ha when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, so admittedly, and I think I told Bruce this, so, <laughs> uh, is that uh, this is going to be a very similar sermon to last year, except I'm adding things. Um, not negative things, good things, I promise. So if you hear a lot of similar things from last year, know that there's reason for that, but you're also going to hear a lot more of new things as well. Um, so, Easter Sunday is one of the most important holidays within the Christian religion. 
It is the day when we take time to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is on this day that we recognize the very real truth which concerns Christ, and that is there is no real middle ground with him. For no matter if one is a believer or if one is not a believer, none can say anything concerning Christ is of minor importance. Either Christ lived, died, and rose again, or he did not. If he did, then the world is changed. If not, then the purpose we meet every week, the grand history of the church, the blood of the martyrs, they're all made void. So today, I would like us to consider the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in two ways. The first is by looking at what we know through the historical evidence. The second is what we experience ourselves. When it comes to the life and death of Christ, there is really no debate. Scholars, whether Christian or or secular, um, whether Christian or not, non-scholars, whether Christian or not, they tend to recognize that Jesus Christ was a Jew who lived in the first century of Israel. Few doubt the claim that he actually existed, that he was a teacher, that he had disciples. Likewise, few doubt that he was actually nailed to a cross, even considered a martyr. Indeed, when we consider many of those who make arguments against the Gospels, for example, we find many scholars actually agree with the Christians in understanding their historical reliability. Whereas most people on social media, Facebook, I'm looking at you, have a very poor understanding of them. That is, when we look at the Gospels, we can see signs that the authors were not writing a great distance in time after the events took place, but were either eyewitnesses or they talked to eyewitnesses. If this is true, then the historical evidence found in the Gospels is important. But that's the question. Is it true? Well, we do have telltale signs that it is true. Consider the names in the Gospels. If, let's say, the Gospels were written in Egypt, then what would you expect to find? You would expect to find Jewish Egyptian names. Indeed, the common names for Egyptian Jews were actually quite different from those from uh, Judean Jews. What do we find in the Gospel, though? Well, we find the common names of people match what we find in Judea at the time. Indeed, the text also gives us hints that this is um, the common names and how they are more than others. Consider the twelve disciples as described in Matthew. Let's read this together. And he called to them, to him, his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now I want you to just look at this real quick. Can you go back actually for a second? Go back. There you go. All right. I need my mic. I want you to look at something. Something very important to us. I don't have my stick. I will use this. All right. Guess what one of the most common names was in Judah at the time? I'll give you a hint. It's the first one. (laughs) Simon. Now, what do you notice about Simon? He is also called Peter. Have you ever wondered, whenever you've read through this, 
why it is that some of these names have extra added little things. Simon, Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. You notice how it says just Philip and Bartholomew. Are they not special? Um, You notice how it says Thomas and then Matthew, the tax collector, very specific. Um, James, the son of Alphaeus. But then Anthaddeus, that guy. Simon, again. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Now you notice that. The names that are common, the names that are more frequent, have an extra added little bit of information. The reason for that is because they're trying to designate who these particular Simons and James are. Same with Jesus. Jesus, who is called the Christ. Um, and that's important. Because if you actually look and you see how Simon's mentioned multiple times and James is mentioned multiple times, in archaeology today, what we found is those are common names in Judah. This is not the same as Egyptian Jews who have really weird names. (laughs) All right. So that's the first bit of information. But it's not only the names of the people. Consider this map. All right. So you see on this map, these are actually names of places in the texts of the Gospels. What do you find? You see Tiberias. You see Magdala. You see Cana. You see Zephyrus. You see Nazareth. um, You see Caesarea. You see, um, let's see, Jericho, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Um, You see all these different places. uh, Bethsaida, Capernaum. All these different places, right? Now, why is that interesting? Because all of those are very small town, out-of-the-way places. All right? So, the interesting detail about this is that not only do they give the small town names... But they also give other things, like it was this far away from this place. Thus, the question is, how would the writers know about these small towns? How did the writers get even these small, obscure, Westfieldian towns right? So again, it is not only the names of the people, but also the names of the towns. Now, a third point is the flora. Now, you might be thinking, the flora? And I say, yes, the flora. For example, we all know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a... And a wee little man was... He climbed up on a... Interesting. You know what's interesting about that, too? In the text, it tells us where that happened. Jericho. And the question is, are there sycamore trees in Jericho? There are, actually... The same is true with fig trees, something that we find throughout the Gospels, fig trees, where particular grass was when um, Jesus fed the 5,000. You think that's a small thing, but you have to remember in context, it's talking about the Passover time, which would have been right after the rain season. In other words, there would have been a lot of grass, which is exactly what the text says. It describes it accurately. Now, The fourth point is something which is relatively new to us within the last 30 years or so. And that has to do with the crucifixion. Now, do you all remember how around the time when Jesus died, something occurred in the sky? Do you guys remember this? What happened? Darkness. Darkness. There was a solar eclipse. 
Now, do you know something else that we found? Well, we can look back and see when Friday was the beginning of Passover during this time period. And we come to two years when that happened, 30 A.D. and 33 A.D. And wouldn't you know it, 33 A.D., we found that there was, in fact, a solar eclipse that happened right at that time. As in within the right hour. <laughs> it wasn't even the day. So I've given you this information for one purpose. The Gospels are often stated as being biased and unreliable. The truth is, however, we find them to be very historically reliable as we see these little bits of added information that would normally not be seen if they were not reliable. For example, how many of you have ever heard of the Apocryphal Gospels? I'm thinking David's going to raise his hand when I say the Gospel of Thomas, um, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of James. Have any of you heard about these? They're very interesting. But do you know what's very interesting about them even more so? They lack any of that information that you would expect from eyewitness sources. Indeed, when it comes to, let's say, place names, do you know what we find? There's usually just one place name that's given. Guess what it is? Jerusalem. The other one is Nazareth. However, um, in that writing, it actually gives that as Jesus' middle name. <laughs> Not as a place. So it says Jesus, Nazareth, Nazareth Christ. It's very weird. Now, we would expect this from people who are writing about things that they don't actually know. For example, if I were to have one of you write a book about France, right? What is the likeliest city that you would include? Paris. Why? Because that is what France is known for. The same with Judah at the time. Jerusalem is the place. So to have all of those added extra names actually shows you something about these people. They were very, very particular. All right. So not only this, but when it comes to, let's say, these apocryphal gospels, when it comes to Jesus, for example, they actually rarely use the name Jesus. It doesn't come up. Instead, they will say Savior or Christ. That's important because it implies a further written date than what we find in the Gospels because the farther you get from something, the more likely you are to forget names or not worry about these little inconsistencies. And let me give you an example. How many times have you ever encountered someone and you've learned their name for the first time and you can't tell me their name, but you can tell me about their life? Because we remember stories much more easier than things like names. And that's what we see with these apocryphal Gospels. So, again, when we consider all these things, and likely more that I haven't gotten into, um, we find the Gospels, again, to be historically reliable, especially when compared to these other writing sources. Scholars, then, whether believers or secularists, they all recognize this to be the case. Now, at this point, however, this is where Christians and non-Christians tend to stop agreeing with Jesus and his crucifixion. For the unbeliever, that's the end of the story. Instead of there being anything more, Christ simply died. What then of the resurrection, you ask? Well, they will say something interesting. Very interesting. For one, they will say the disciples made the whole story up. But let's consider that. For those who believe that the disciples made up the story, it makes little sense. Consider the passages we read through today um, when we started. Who was it that first came to the empty tomb? Was it the disciples? 
No, it was the women. Why weren't the disciples there? Because they were not expecting Christ to rise from the dead. They thought it was over. They all fled as soon as Christ was arrested. And Peter, one of the few who didn't, even betrayed Christ by denying him three times. If the disciples made up the story of the resurrection, then why would they do it this way? Why not make themselves look good, look better, instead of looking completely lost and, to be frank, ignorant? Further, why add to the story that women were the first to encounter the empty tomb? Few seem to realize that during the first century, and I hate to say this, but it's true, women were rarely allowed to even give testimony when it came to court. Thus, the testimony of women would go against the disciples, assuming that they made it all up. So why include that in the story? Likewise, no first century Jew had even considered the resurrection of a single person before. Instead, the resurrection, it was understood to be this eschatological end times event. Within Jewish literature, there is no event which occurs like the rising of Christ from the dead. Some will say, what about Enoch? What about Elijah? Well, the problem with these two is that they are not resurrections. They were translations, where one went to heaven without dying. Likewise, one would ask about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. Yet this was not considered to be resurrection. Lazarus was a resuscitation, where one was brought back to life, but then he died again. The resurrection during the time of Christ meant one thing to Jews. He died, and then he was raised into immortality, because that is the definition of resurrection. Not surprisingly, this is the language used by the New Testament writers themselves. They did not see this as a translation nor a resuscitation, but as the resurrection. Thus, for Christ to rise from the dead into immortality would go against everything the disciples had actually understood. Does this make sense when we read the text? One would say it does, especially since, again, the disciples are not seen to even comprehend the resurrection of Jesus. They are not expecting it. They were just as surprised and shocked as anyone else. Further, let us assume that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Then the problem lies in the fact that the tomb is in fact empty. Even if the disciples were to make up the story that Jesus rose from the dead, their skeptics could go to the burial place, see the body, and then they just simply move on. As it is, they don't do this because there was no body in the tomb. Some will point to Matthew 20, 11-15 as an argument against the empty tomb. Consider again what the text says. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Aha! Gotcha, the skeptic will say. Clearly the body was stolen by the disciples by night. But here's something to consider about this. First, again, the disciples would never have thought about this kind of understanding of the resurrection to begin with. Second, why would Christians include this in their own history? It seems self-defeating if it were true. This then leads to the third point, which is that the argument by the Sanhedrin is exactly what you would expect from a skeptic. The final point is this, the tomb, no matter what they say, is still empty. 
No skeptical Jewish leader could go to the tomb and say the disciples are liars about Christ rising because there was no body in the tomb. Also consider those who had seen Jesus after the resurrection took place. Some skeptics, they'll say, Ah, it was mass hysteria. Psychological. The problem is, again, none of those Jewish believers would have had mass hysteria because they would never have had the thought of a resurrected Savior. For them, Christ was the warrior king who defeated all their enemies. Christ dying on the cross was nothing that they were expecting. Likewise, there has never been an instance once everyone experienced the exact same thing in mass hysteria, the exact same words, the same exact experiences. Like, I, you, you can imagine that, right? People who are tripping on mushrooms. Do they ever come out of their trip and say, hey, I had this crazy experience. What did you have? Oh, the same one. Never happens. Now, another point is this. When we consider the ways Jesus is presented after the resurrection. Now think about it. If one wanted to make up a story about Jesus, you would make him the great example. He would be taller than the tomb, shining, dazzling brilliance. Yet he isn't like that at all. He isn't even, he's mistaken actually for the gardener. Indeed, the angels appear more dazzling than the risen Lord. If they were making it up, Why would they write about his appearance in such a mundane, everyday kind of sort of way? It doesn't make any sense. Further, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There's a lot of information to consider from this one passage. First, this is not originally written by Paul. The language is different from the rest of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it flows well with Aramaic, which implies it was first in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. This is especially clear since we notice Peter is not called Peter, but Cephas. All scholars, whether believers or unbelievers, all recognize that these few verses are important for their historicity. It shows that these words are some of the oldest in the church. And this makes sense, that it was not originally Paul's when he says, I delivered to you what I also received. This language describes teaching and learning. He was taught this and then proclaimed the same gospel to others. Assuming Paul had been converted between one to three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it implies that this is a very, very, very old teaching from the beginning of the conception of the church. But what was he given? The gospel itself. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day. The fact that he died, was truly dead, and was buried implies that he was, in fact, in the tomb but that ultimately he had been resurrected from death, and because of that, the tomb was empty. Next, considered who Christ appeared to. First to Peter, then to the twelve, then five hundred brothers, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then to James, then all the apostles, last of all to Paul. Consider all that information for a second. Jesus, he appears to a great number of his followers, and Paul is reminding them, and if you doubt this, go ask them. 
Some are still alive. Go and ask if they truly experienced a physical Jesus or some ghost. And they will tell you the same, that they experienced a physical Christ raised from the dead. Likewise, the three named individuals are important. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was the head of the church uh, after Pentecost, which we see in Acts. He thought Jesus, um, and the second one named is James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus. Now, what do we know about James? Well, he thought that Jesus was insane. We learned that from Mark 3. Yet after Peter, James becomes the most important leader in the church in Jerusalem, as we find in Acts. And then Paul, who was the great persecutor of the church, um, he had an experience. What would cause Peter, James, and Paul to change their minds over what had occurred? We can't chalk it up to delusion or what they expected. The truth is, Peter, under normal circumstances, would have found a different Messiah or teacher, and most did during that time. James, there was no reason for him to experience Jesus at all. He didn't even believe in Jesus. He wasn't even following Jesus. Paul, meanwhile, thought that he was doing God's will by killing Christians. Only something of significant consequence would allow these doubting and even hostile men to change their opinions, and that experience was a truly resurrected Jesus. Finally, when we consider how much of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ, when we consider how Christ is described as the Lamb of God in John, it reminds us everything prior to Christ was foreshadowing of his coming. The Passover Lamb was a prelude to Christ. His blood causes death to pass over us. Indeed, this is just one example of so many more within the scriptures themselves which foretold the coming of Christ. Thus, we have good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And now we should have a good understanding of how those who are looking at the resurrection in the early church perceived it. We all recognize that the resurrection is a vastly different event than any other event in history. For never before has a man died, been raised from death, and then never has had death touch him again. Yet this causes us to reflect on one final bit of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, And I talked about this previously, but a few years ago now, my daughter was asking about God. And she was asking if he was with us. It was hard for her to understand, since she couldn't see God physically. So to help her understand, I asked her about when I get home from work. This is before she went to school. And usually when I get home, they're not at the door. They're usually like in the living room playing or doing something else. But when I close the door, they know I am there. Even though they have not seen me, they have an experience of my presence with them. The same it is with God. Even though we may not always see him or hear him, his presence is surely with us and we know it through our experiences. In this way, we, 2,000 years later, know Christ is truly risen, for we experience him here and now as we live. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then we would have no experience of Christ. But as it is, we do, and thus Christ must be raised. Indeed, this is the second point for the evidence of the resurrection. If the first dealt with the historical, which we read, the second deals with the personal experiences that we have. For those who believe in Christ have had an experience with Christ. He lives in our hearts. He leads us by the hand and loves each of us. He has promised to be with us, and each of us who belongs to him knows him personally, 
as they do their own family. We know Jesus is risen because he is with us. Now this reminds me, ultimately, of a story about Charles Templeton. Now Charles Templeton, he was a, he was a contemporary and a friend of Billy Graham. But he ended up leaving the faith, Templeton. But when he had an interview with Lee Strobel, um, something weird happened. Listen to this story. Um, and how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response I would get. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, I, I stuttered, searching for the right words. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Look, just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't look of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There may have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, But no, he said slowly, he's the most, he stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected him from him. And if I may put it this way, he said in a voice that began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Presence. The presence of Christ. It is a true and real experience. So what of this resurrection? We have justification for believing this historical event took place. However, what does it mean? Well, first it would mean that God exists. For nothing like this event could occur within the natural order. For no one would be raised from death into immortality apart from a supernatural act of God. If God exists, then it means he has done something in history. But for what purpose? Consider what Jesus says in John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. This occurs with Mary Magdalene. Right after the resurrection, we notice Jesus calls them his brothers and calls his Father their Father, his God their God. 
In this verse alone, we recognize the resurrection has consequences for those who know Christ and who are known by Christ. Those who are brothers of Christ are children of the Father. It is only after the resurrection that this is possible. Consider what Paul says in Romans 4, 22-25. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The death of Jesus deals with our sins. We are in need of our sins being erased. They are erased by the power of the blood of Christ on the cross. However, it does not end there. For death itself comes for us because of our sins. It is because we sin we experience death. Thus, even if we are forgiven sins, the complete justification is unfulfilled because we still feel the wages of sin, which is death. With the resurrection, however... We see that even death has been conquered. Thus, our justification is not in part, but is complete through the resurrection. Because Christ has overcome the grave, we will as well. Death will not be able to keep us. Not because of our own power, but because of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. As Paul says in Romans 6, 9-11, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And further, in 1 Corinthians 15, 48-49, As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. My dear friends, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those who have faith in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection, and those who show the fruit of faith through repentance from sin, they will not feel the bite of sin and death, but instead will inherit eternal life through the Son of God. For just as he went into death, he was raised. And though we go into death, we too will be raised if we are in Christ. On this holy day, know the blessings which come from the resurrection of Christ. Know that through him, we too will have a resurrection from a mortal body into an immortal one. We who die in Christ merely fall asleep for a time, but we will wake into a new life. It is all because of Christ. It is all because of what he has done. If we are bound to Christ, then we too will experience the wonder of his resurrection. From Friday through Sunday morning, the disciples had lost hope. They had doubt and darkness deep within their lives because they believed that was the end. The darkness, however, passed at the coming radiant light of Christ Jesus. So we too who live in this darkness, who experience the pangs of sin, yet those who are in Christ have received the same radiant light. And in that time, the radiant light will lead us to eternal life through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes his grand case for the resurrection. He ends with these words. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Keep on my family of the faith. Know that in Christ our labor is not in vain, and that the harvest has just begun through Christ. Most of all, though, celebrate. For the resurrection has occurred, our Lord has been raised from the dead, and we know this to be true because he is with us here now and forever. As is customary, I like to end my Easter sermon with um, John Chrysostom. He was, con- his last name Chrysostom actually means golden mouthed because he was considered one of the greatest preachers in the church. Um, and this is what he one time wrote about the Paschal Lamb. If any man be devout and love God, let him enjoy this fair and radiant triumphal feast. If any man be a wise servant, let him rejoicing enter into the joy of his Lord. If any have labored long in fasting, let him now receive his recompense. If any have wrought from the first hour, let him today receive his just reward. If any come at the third hour, let him with thankfulness keep the feast. If any have arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, because he shall in no wise be deprived thereof. If any have delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near, fearing nothing. If any have tarried even unto the eleventh hour, let him also not be alarmed at his tardiness. For the Lord who is jealous of his honor will accept the last even as the first. He gives us rest unto him who comes at the eleventh hour even as unto those who comes from the first hour. And he shows mercy upon the last and cares for the first. And to the one he gives and upon the other he bestows gifts. And he both accepts the deeds and welcomes the intention. And honors the acts and praises the offering. Wherefore enter you all into the joy of your Lord and receive your reward. Both the first and likewise the second. You rich and poor together. Hold high festival. You sober and you heedless. Honor the day. Rejoice today. Both you who have fasted and you have disregarded the fast. The table is full laden. Feast ye all sumptuously. The calf is fatted. Let no one go hungry away. Enjoy ye all the fast of faith. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty. For the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities. For pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death. For the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this day, did cry, Hell, said he, was embittered when it counted thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fetid in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
that you have raised him from the dead, and that we who have faith will be raised from the dead as well, and that you have abolished sin, you have abolished death. Lord, you are truly worthy of us. The angels sing, the saints sing, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is he. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We offer all of our lives to this king who has died and who has been raised to death, from, from death to, to life. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.